is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast series by the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Doug Strube, Assistant Director of NBR's Center for Innovation, Trade, and Strategy. This is the final episode of a three-part mini-series discussing the National Bureau of Asian Research's recent report, China's Digital Ambitions, A Global Strategy to Supplant the Liberal Order. In this episode, we're again joined by the project's principal investigator, Emily Delabruyere, who will be hosting a discussion with two of the report's authors, focusing on the security implications of China's digital strategy and policy recommendations for countries concerned about China's growing digital influence. She's joined by Greg Levesque, co-founder and chief executive officer at Strider, and Matt Turpin, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and former China director of the National Security Council. Greg authored the report's chapter on the security implications of China's digital strategy, and Matt authored the final chapter, which provided a framework for developing more effective policy responses. And with that, over to you, Emily. Hello. Thank you for joining us. This is the third in a three-part series. In the first part of this series, I talked about industrial revolutions and China's approach to the current one in particular. In the second part, Sam Hoffman, Nigel Corey, and Karen Suter talked about how concretely Beijing is taking advantage of today's digital revolution. Now it's up to you guys to solve the problem, to tell us how it is we are going to address China's digital ambitions, how the international community can respond in a manner that supports norms, security, and prosperity. Um, So you have an easy task ahead of you for the next little while. But I want to start first with Greg and why it is we need to respond. What direct threat do China's digital ambitions pose to, well, international security first, but really to the global order? Thanks for the question, Emily, and and uh, just been thrilled to be part of this uh, project from from the beginning and uh, to have worked with uh, with the team, including you and Matt on this. So first, want to just say thank you for all the work that went into putting this all together. Look, I, I think we're actually watching. Uh, the international security risks of China's digital ambitions unfold right now. So I think in the past two days, you, we've we've heard announcements that UnionPay is going to be stepping in to provide financial transactions on behalf of Russian banks. This is obviously a core part of um, PRC's digital platform strategy. It's multifaceted. Um, it covers financial and banking transactions, uh, cybersecurity, data flows even ports and shipping data, right? It's not to say that in, in, uh, on their face that they're like bad things. Um, they're, they are driving a number of um, advances in third world countries, particularly in Africa. But as we can see, what it does is enables China to have a whole new toolkit that is uh, in many respects counterproductive to US and uh, allied policies around the world. And so I think when you really break down some of the challenges that the U.S. is facing, not only today, but will increasingly be facing in the future as as these trends accelerate, is um, a reduction in the toolkit that we have from sanctions um, to uh, investment activity that can uh, actually influence the behavior of other nation states. So, I mean, that's a broad macro kind of look at it. but I think, you know, as we were kind of working on this and looking at China's plans, the way that they were talking about their digital ambitions and strategies, I mean, in essence, it's um, it's to provide 
them and their network of um, nation state, I don't want to call them allies, but we'll call them allies for now, other uh, uh, leverage points to achieve whatever it is their national objectives might be. I'm glad you made that point about how in some cases what China is doing is helpful or fosters development because I think that that's one of the things it's at least one of the things that I feel like I run up against consistently in conversations about China's digital ambitions but also global ambitions much of what Beijing is doing rests on building infrastructure and or building systems that are going to be built eventually and or need to be built eventually and so the pushback one gets consistently is well someone's going to do this why do we actually why should we be so concerned about it being China and Matt, maybe turning to you, how is what Beijing is doing different in terms of its threat than the liberal digital order, say, as you present as an alternative in your chapter? Yeah, um, and, one, and, and thanks to everybody for, for you know, having me here. I mean, I think we should be very honest with ourselves that, that you know, our digital infrastructure serves as the pipes and wires of, of a liberal international system. Right, that that you know what we imbue within that infrastructure uh, serves as uh, the guardrails uh, for the way in which our international system works, and that for Beijing and for countries like Russia and and, and Iran and others, um, they understand that that international system is essentially designed to to disadvantage. Their governmental models, and, and I think it's very clear, you know, as you look at at the intentions behind what Beijing is seeking to to build out, right, which is uh, to build out an alternative system. It is to ensure that that broader international system does not continue to disadvantage them. And so I think we should be very honest with ourselves about that, and and become much more comfortable with the fact that 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 we actually do have interests that a liberal international system serves our purposes. And then when we get right down to it, um, you know, the, the details of how that's executed is, is oftentimes through digital infrastructure in the world today. And therefore it is, it is very much worth our time, energy and effort and investments to maintain that system and have it be built around things that, that reflect our values um, and and the rule of law, as opposed to allow an alternative system uh, to supplant that, and then we discover uh, that we are at significant disadvantages not only for our national security but our own economic prosperity, um, as as sort of changes you know, populate throughout the broader system as as sort of new rules and guardrails take effect. You know, um, on that note too, Emily, like. One of the uh, analogies that comes to mind as, as Matt was talking was, um, and I'm sure Matt can recall this, you know, back when uh, back when the Huawei debate was raging in Europe, um, a lot of folks were always asking, well, this is what, you know, what's inherently bad about this? Where's the smoking gun? And I think, you know, to, to Matt's point, like that was a great kind of inflection, uh, you know, moment, I think in the discovery between, you know, the US and our allies in Europe and what China was doing. And, um, a Halifax International Security Forum last fall, I think Malcolm Turnbull kind of summed it up really nicely. His 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 point was, look, um, it's not so much about a smoking gun, because at that point it's too late, but do you want to have 
somebody that doesn't share your values or goals for the future to have a loaded gun and a capability to pull the trigger, right? And I think that's when you go through the report that we, you know, we collectively all put together, um, you look at some of the activities that China is, is conducting today. Um, and what you see is, you know, they're putting together the pieces to be able to have not only the, the gun, but have it loaded and the ability to pull the trigger uh, when they when they choose. And that that to me is is the concerning point. And, and kind of cuts through that little bit of a debate around, but what they're doing is inherently good for some parts of the world. Sure, it might be today, but how does that play out over time? That's a great framing. And I'm also really glad you raised the Huawei case because the other beat of that is that in the Huawei case, so much of the conversation was that, okay, it'll give China the ability to spy on the world. And one of the points that you flesh out really neatly in your chapter is that it doesn't end there. That, you know, yes, that's a risk, but it's really kind of just the beginning of the threat that China's control over digital infrastructure could present. I wonder if you could speak to that, like the espionage conversation and, and what it's missing in the overall story. Look, I view these systems as multifaceted. They're, they're capabilities. Okay. And so then you kind of can take a step back and say, well, what does this capability enable? Um, in the case of Huawei and the ability to control um, telecommunications and information tech, you know, communication technology platforms, there's a whole range of things that you could point to to say this enables X, Y, and Z. So sure, one of them is espionage. As uh, I noted in, in uh, the chapter, that's actually, you know, Chinese ICT companies are required by law, I think it's Article 7 of the Cybersecurity Law and the National Security Law, to um, aid the Public Security Bureau in um, espionage-type activities. Right. So um, I, I, I think personally, like the debate over whether or not these things enable espionage should be kind of moot. Um, there's already plenty of evidence and anecdotes out there uh, that you can point to. But another component of this is just the ability to collect data on foreign nations. OK, even if it's not necessarily for espionage purposes that provide an unfair competitive advantage either for Chinese companies. Right. That can create market distortions or for the Chinese government. And I think a good example of where we are seeing this play out um, is along the One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, so the Chinese government was actively leveraging and actually creating, I mean, I call them front companies because they don't seem to be actually engaged in legitimate commercial business. Uh, but these were companies that were set up with a sole mandate to uh, develop ICT infrastructure in Southeast Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East, and then leverage that infrastructure to collect data to then start to in better inform uh, one belt, one road policy directions uh, over an extended period of time. Super smart, right? So like on one hand, you kind of ha have to hand it to them that like they're taking a data-driven approach, approach to executing a long-term geopolitical strategy. That's the kind of piece here that I think often gets overlooked in this Chinese ICT company debate is it, it, it immediately goes to intelligence and national security risk with that kind of traditional lens on it. It misses the broader implications of what that data access and information enables them to achieve, right? Going, going, uh, going forward. So to me, like, you know, that that's kind of um, one of the core things that, you know, we hope to address uh, out of this, out of this uh, report is to start to expand the lens a little bit understand the PRC playbook so that we can better position ourselves to compete and win. You know, and the other the other 
aspect of it that I would, I would go off of, of you know, beyond just the, the espionage and sort of the data side of this is the is the creation of of dependencies and leverage. Um, I think it's you know it's it it isn't probably too difficult for us to imagine uh, that if Lithuania or Australia had gone down the path of of allowing itself and their their digital infrastructure to become you know entirely dependent upon uh, you know PRC entities in provisioning it that that when the Chinese government chose uh, to impose you know harsh uh, you know economic uh, sanctions and actions against those countries that 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 infrastructure would be you know held at risk and therefore you know sort of this this divorcing of of commercial activity from broader geopolitics um, and national security concerns right uh, which you know I think you know, we've now have plenty of evidence to begin to maybe set those those thoughts aside and and fully appreciate that that commercial decisions, particularly around critical infrastructure, um, you know, needs to be uh, uh, evaluated through the lens of of how might uh, a nation state uh, choose to use it should uh, it choose to exercise uh, leverage and coercion. Uh, over another state in their decisions, right? So therefore, you know, simply you know, decisions around, uh, you know, this is marginally less expensive. Um, you know, this is just as good quality, you know, to, to discount the other side of it, right? Which is what are the risks and inherent costs that come from uh, the, the weaponization of this infrastructure against us um, has to be a, a calculation now. Right, and and so to me, this is this is sort sort of fundamentally what it's about, um, and this this was a part that was sort of missing from that conversation, you know, as countries sort of uh, you know made debates about Huawei is is that they focused almost entirely on an espionage aspect, as opposed to sort of the broader you know how do you depend on your digital infrastructure, um, you know what does this do for the the profitability of all of your companies and businesses, you know particularly as we move into a fourth industrial revolution. And and the ways in which those companies depend upon that infrastructure, you know, is integral to your own economic prosperity. That dependency point, I feel like that is also such a striking one in the context of Russia right now, um, because you look at all the international responses to that. And then, of course, there's the question, if this had been China, what within this already limited arsenal would we have been able to execute? And I think the answer is approximately nothing. Um, and that's not even mentioning the propaganda and disinformation arsenal that Beijing gets from its larger digital strategy and the ability to shape the narrative. The dependence thing, I think, also cues up the scary question, which is right now we're talking about Beijing's digital ambitions as a future possibility. And sometimes it worries me that maybe this is already a fait accompli. Are we already there or to what degree are we already there? Like where how far has Beijing progressed in its strategy, do you think? Like, what's your diagnosis? And maybe, Greg, if you want to kick us off on this one. Look, I, I, uh, I, I think there's still a lot of, like, technical capability gaps in the Chinese system to really say that it's, like, a fait accompli at this, at this like, stage. It's certainly trending in that direction. Um, I don't know. I've, I've been thinking about this actually quite a bit the last couple of days, um, you know, and thinking about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, how that's going to impact PRC responses. To me, this seems like an accelerating event. I think that they are likely going to be doubling down on a lot of these initiatives because um, 
the concerns that they have in many respects, in some ways, I think are being validated, right? As US and European companies um, quite literally like cut Russia off from the global economy and the internet. This is the concern that China's leaders have, right? As, as they've been uh, marching forward, uh, their, their grand strategies, particularly since 2013, right? Is uh, this notion of like sovereignty across the board um, and the ability to uh, insulate their economy and society um, in order to not uh, have to appease other global you know, powers like the United States. So that is the competition we're in when you break it down, right? The competition is for um, China to be able to actually act independent of, uh, in my view, like, you know, Western and um, democratic influences and insulate themselves from that. So, you know, this is where I think it's behooven on the U.S. government and our allies to really start to look at this trend line. Think about second and third degree consequences of some of the actions that are being taken to date, because um, it's not alleviating anyone's concerns in many respects in China. Um, in fact, I think it's just adding proof points to what they've been uh, been pounding on the drum, so to speak, for the last 10 years. You know, part of our challenge in putting together a kind of response to you know, really a, a, a problem that is already manifest. It is not a future problem. It is already manifest, and we are dealing with it in sort of numerous sectors across sort of digital infrastructure, is, is the fear that, that, that our aggressive and uh, you know, uh, coordinated action would only accelerate and add sort of fuel to Beijing's fire of, of wanting to achieve this. You know, we see this, this logic uh, playing out in the realm of semiconductors. You know, we shouldn't uh, limit their ability to, to tools or to advance semiconductors because it'll only uh, inspire greater, you know, willingness to, 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 to pursue their goals. And I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a false argument. Um, fundamentally, because those motivations already exist, right? You know, I think I think it's extremely clear that the Chinese Communist Party views the liberal international order um, and 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 the values and 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 concepts that we think are integral uh, to our way of life as as existential threats to the party's rule, and therefore. You know, they see those threats residing in a number of different areas, and they are already highly motivated to to mitigate um, and provide alternatives to those threats. And and we should really be thinking about, you know, what is it that we want to do uh, to to reinforce and and create the kind of liberal order we want, as opposed to negotiating with and seeking to mollify their fears, right? Because I, I, I truly don't think that we are able to mollify the, the, the fears and, and threats that the party feels because it's our existence and the existence of our democratic systems that threaten them. It isn't you know, some sort of uh, uh, you know, policy decisions uh, that we can do on the side. And I think you know, this, this is playing out and it's very clear with what we're watching with with Putin and and his decisions around Ukraine, you know, a democratic Ukraine is a threat to his system, um, and I think it's very clear that that's that's where Beijing kind of comes down on this as well. And so, therefore, I, I think our 
our much far our, our much greater risk is sort of an undershooting and and a lack of of concerted action to achieve as opposed to the other end which is sort of an overreaction on our part right we we actually probably you know it's it's probably very difficult for us to overreact you know in this point in time we need to be doing much much more it, you know i totally agree with your points of like not mollifying their fears when you break it down i don't know that the west really views industry these digital platforms as a battle space in the same way that china does and i think that's why you get some of these these uh, arguments right is because it is inherently I think you're right yeah I mean, it's inherently baked into like our system that you pursue collaboration when there's commercial opportunity. Um, the U.S. government since the 70s has been driving industry to build ties with China. Um, and yet there still hasn't really been what I would argue is like a co a concerted effort to align industry onto what are like the core targets. So, yeah, semiconductors is a great you know case in point here. You know, Leo, uh, Leo Ha, I think, is now leading some grant initiative to develop an indigenous Chinese like full value chain and production chain for semiconductor industry. We'll see how that goes. Like to me, a lot of this comes back to like, what are what are the core facets of the competition? Where should we prioritize resources? And then how can you engage industry around that to mobilize them to actually drive some of these things forward? It's a it's a big challenge, and I and I I think that's you know part of the underbelly uh, of the system uh, if we were to identify one. And I mean it's striking because like not only I think do we emphasize cooperation internationally in the industrial domain, but we're also you know, we have plenty of infighting on our own platforms, which prevents them in a lot of ways from being used as tools for national power or multilateral power for that matter. Um, like, where is the cooperation with the U.S. and allies and partners on actually having competitive platforms? Um, and all of this tees us up neatly for, I think, Matt to solve the problem for us. So <laughs> what are we supposed to do about it? Well, um, and, and maybe just to sort of finish that that point, you know, that that, you know, the the mindset that that Greg discussed, right, which is essentially, you know, sort of a peace through trade kind of mindset view these uh commercial economic and financial uh interactions as as the methods in which we would achieve political liberalization you know in countries that we think should you know we would like to have join a broader liberal international system and i think you know the last two weeks uh should place you know in in the minds of of many folks who have clung to that concept should place uh, you know a high degree of skepticism you know, on on the ability of that strategic approach to work, and I think you know, as a country and as a group of liberal democracies, we actually have begun to move past that, right? You know, I, I look to to Japan, that you know, for nearly a decade now, particularly after the whole Sekakus and rare earth embargo by the PRC, has been pursuing a an effort uh, to reevaluate and reassess. Uh, their relationships and find and diversify and and seek to make stronger partnerships with other liberal democracies. And it's clear that the Europeans are moving through this debate, and we may have reached an inflection, you know, particularly with a rejection of of Chancellor Merkel's approach and and sort of a long period of of peace through trade. You know, I think we have an opportunity here. To me, this gets us to like, what do we do now? And you know, I think fundamentally that's a mindset of you know one. Not necessarily viewing that that you know 
that our best intentions on on opening up and gaining access uh, to the PRC market doesn't mean that there is no opportunities in the world. It just means you reset your opportunities to other places and spend more time, energy, and effort building out your your uh, markets and and your commercial interactions uh, with places that share sort of a, a set of values and uh, rule of law uh, and set of rules that that enable your business practices to go forward. And that's going to mean the fundamental rebuilding of how international trade works, not a decoupling, but a rebalancing of globalization to other parts of the world. And it appears that we are moving to a new mindset. I think that's a really important like, nuance of the whole argument is it's not that we need to you know, retrench upon ourselves and revert to an American fortress or American island mentality. It's that there is one spoiler or one particularly important spoiler that's not playing by the rules and that changes or that subverts, undermines the globalized framework. Um, and we don't have you know, there's a lot about the international trade system or economic system we can continue to accept while still trying to make sure that this one player exists within it as opposed to takes it over. Greg, how feasible is this? Look, I, I, I'm a forever optimistic, okay? So, um, and, and I'll never get bet against the US and our allies to start to come together to solve these problems. And to Matt's point, I think he's right, like they are. You know, I, I think Matt in particular, uh, when he was on the NSC, did some phenomenal work in laying the foundations for this. In a, in a in actually a, in a bipartisan way that has uh, even survived and been built upon uh, under this this current administration. In my conversations over the last two years with industry leaders, both here in the U.S., Canada, Europe, Japan, the tone and tenor has changed dramatically from where it was even five years ago. Um, when I think a lot of folks were scratching their heads when they you know heard about China as a threat, um, I think uh, in particular like COVID has accelerated some of that that awakening, if you want to call it that. And it, it is starting to change corporate strategy in some ways. You guys know I'm pretty obsessed with uh, industry as a battle space within the US-China you know, competition. So that is a, a lens that I you know spend a lot of time looking through. But I, I think fundamentally, the feasibility of it comes down to leadership and uh, sustained commitment. And uh, I think if, if, uh, if those two things don't perpetuate across particularly U.S. administrations. We're, we're in for probably a drawn out, um, ugly competition that is going to have a pretty significant impact on, on U.S. industry and society writ large. Uh, because to Matt's point earlier, like, you know, you got to give uh, Beijing credit. They do identify their targets pretty openly and then they execute against them in a pretty systematic tactical way. So um, if we're going to continue to have these kinds of debates on is China a threat, is it not, how much of it is it, or how little, and is it this industry or that industry, this is where we start to lose the time game. And, um, and then we fall into the trap that even Chinese strategic leaders talk often about, which is a window of opportunity for them, right? With this riding this fourth industrial revolution wave, um, achieving in their parlance the commanding heights of emerging frontier technology, right? So they've identified the goal, they've identified where they want to be, and then they, you know, tie onto that the implications for what it would mean for China going forward over the next, you know, 10, 20, 100 years. Um, the question then becomes, are we going to take them at their word? Or are we going to continue to have these kinds of debates 
that I think um, just undermine our position over the long run. And, and I think, you know, we, we can look to, you know, what what the party says internally um, to to feel a little bit of optimistic about ourselves. Uh, they are highly concerned at the regenerative power of of countries like the United States, Japan and Europe and Korea to to adapt and achieve goals in ways that that they know themselves you know, have trouble doing in a in a top down directed system. And so they themselves are quite concerned about this. They know that if countries sort of awaken to the to the challenge that's posed, that that window of opportunity closes because the world, the, the international environment becomes far less permissive to their behavior and they have not yet achieved their goals, right? And I think, yeah, that should give us an awful lot of confidence to sort of move forward in a much more sort of aggressive and bold effort uh, to remake an international system to how we would want it to be, as opposed to sort of, you know, wringing our hands that, that, that making any changes might be unstable. The world is unstable already, right? Um, are reacting and and taking efforts uh, to make it into the world we'd want it to be is not the thing that will destabilize the international system, right? Our failure to sort of act decisively and boldly to achieve those sorts of outcomes will increase stability, instability. Um, and I think that that is what we need to have in mind at this point as opposed to uh, a careful approach. And how like how do we actually execute that? Like if there is one thing the U.S. or really any government um, internationally other perhaps than China's could do right now to catalyze this kind of a response, what would that be? Well, I think, you know, we, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, understanding that sort of the industrial, commercial, economic, financial domains are actually the domains of of competition, right? Understanding that that's where the competition is playing out requires a much more detailed understanding of the landscape of how that, of how those domains are constructed and operate, right? You know, it, you know, I think of this in sort of, you know, let, let's make sort of a, a military analogy, right? You know, if you're gonna conduct a campaign, you know, over a piece of terrain, you better understand like the map like and what the weather is going to be, you know, what the various forces are, right? And if you won't have a good understanding of that and don't have a good sort of way to be able to sort of see that in real time and update it, right, it's really difficult to figure out how you'll put together a plan and then execute that plan over time, right? And so if, as we've sort of, I think, pointed out that, that these are the domains of competition in which it's unfolding, governments across sort of liberal democracies need to get much better at seeing right through like a common operating picture how those how those domains actually are laid out what are the commercial interactions between various companies what is the supplier uh, you know consumer relationships between those companies you know how do the how do supply chains flow what what are the options for other other flows well, uh, Matt, I mean, on that note, like once uh, this is also kind of a question and and another thought I've been having of late is, uh, you know, like the the piece to me that continues to be lacking is um, actually just engaging the American people. 
you know, there's a lot of debate in DC. You know, you can you can use whatever euphemisms you want to describe the China conversations that are happening there. They're very wonky. I'm having conversations with folks in Ubers out here in in Utah, and um, they they're all tuned into you know, at a general level, what's happening with China. Our government has not asked anybody to do anything though, and to me, that's a core. Uh, deficiency in our in our, in our response, you know, and so it it's, it, it goes back to again like this leadership piece. Um, I personally think the American people are craving to participate in uh, addressing the challenges that face our nation. Um, I think there's oftentimes too little asked of them, and uh, I think particularly around this challenge, it's not going to be solved in D.C. or in Brussels. It's going to be articulated from there, but it's going to be solved by getting. Uh, you know, companies on board and research institutions and universities on board to the problem. Um, and then and then looking at it through a clear eyed view. Right. It's not it's not about not allowing Chinese students to come study in the US. It's about how do we keep them here to support the uh, motivations and dreams that they have and that can help advance uh, our country and uh, the system that we're building. Right. Um, those are the kinds of like leadership conversations I think that need to be happening. But at first blush, right, you kind of sit back and say, well, in order to do that, you then have to make a decision. And the decision is, are we going to go full in on a competition or are we going to continue to kind of go back and forth? I completely agree. I mean, this has got um, without that kind of of sort of definitive sort of leadership set of decisions and and the ability to communicate you know, why is it Americans uh, sort of need to sacrifice to achieve other things? Um, if you don't lay that out, it's extremely uh, it's extremely difficult to understand what people are supposed to do. And so I think, you know, I think that is that is spot on. And but it seems like, as Greg said, the American population more than any other time is right now ready to engage in this competition, um, even if that means eating costs and or changing our assumptions. Yeah. The, um, the beauty of democracy is that is that, you know, oftentimes uh, folks feel that they take ownership and agency, you know, sort of their own futures and demonstrate a way forward. And, you know, it's often the, the, the job of, of political leaders to, to, to pick up on that and then to reinforce it to achieve the outcomes uh, that that sort of enter our collective interests. And to me, that's, that's, that's how our system is supposed to work. And we should enable that. I and mean, I think that's fundamentally what scares the Chinese Communist Party is, is that aspect of, of how we can redirect ourselves uh, to enter, uh, to achieve, to achieve goals that, that are in our best interests and that they know will disadvantage them. Yeah, you're spot on, Matt. I mean, they even actually talk about this internally, right? They don't want to create a Sputnik moment for the U.S., get everybody mobilized and turning, right? So spot on. You know, I'm not generally, unlike Greg, an optimist, but considering that we're probably at time and but we're on this kind of hopeful note, um, maybe if we wrap up with both of you, what is like one thing that when you are most despairing about the state of this competition um, and the U.S. response or lack thereof, one thing that you turn to that actually makes you think there might be hope. Yeah, look, for me, um, back to my industry lens, right? Like five years ago, you know, there was, there was very healthy debate on like whether or not industry would, would actually wake up and address some of these challenges. I'm not going to say like 
everyone's all of a sudden pivoting and ripping up their their tenure strategies and things like that. But um, one of the things that I turn to is that uh, I have yet to speak to anyone in a C-suite level position at a Fortune 500 company that is not very attuned to what's happening as it relates to China and beginning to develop new ways of addressing it and how they're thinking about their business vis-a-vis -vis the U.S.'s interests and the values that underpin the creation of their company and their employees, um, and then how they're engaging in China and potentially enabling uh, an adversary. Right. So those were conversations that, I mean, frankly, weren't really happening uh, in any kind of scale five, even five, six years ago that um, are happening daily uh, for me you know, right now that, uh, again, goes back to my optimistic point of view. Look, some a lot of times when the government um, is short uh, in delivering on some of these things, you see other facets of the country come together to address them themselves until government can kind of catch up a little bit. I think in some respects, industry and particularly certain segments of industry is doing that. And that that obviously gives me some data points that, that drive that optimism. Um, one of the things that makes makes me optimistic and and you know, sort of similar to to Greg's remarks is, you know, I think we've 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 successfully turned off the autopilot China policy in the United States, right? For you know, for a long period of time, really, kind of from uh, the mid nineteen nineties, right? When when President Clinton sort of made a decision that that what we would pursue is sort of you know you know how to help the Chinese economy develop, and that that would lead to political liberalization. That we sort of stayed in an autopilot. That 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 strategic approach was essentially the approach we were going to take, no matter what the sort of signals were of whether that was working or not. And it appears to me that 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 autopilot is off, right? And so, um, which means that you have Americans and Japanese and Europeans um, and Australians and Koreans and Taiwanese, all sort of in a mix to come up with what is our new approach. And, and when we're sort of, when it's a topic of discussion and you've got a bunch of different voices contributing and, you know, the ownership of the policy isn't just a narrow set of sort of relationship managers, but a broader set of voices from across society, I'm quite optimistic that the outcome will be far better than simply staying on autopilot. And to me, this is just, you know, you know I don't know how it's going to turn out, but that I'd bet on it turning out much better under those conditions than sort of sitting back and saying, well, we, we aren't going to touch it because it's too risky to touch. Um, and that that to me is what leads to sort of failures and and systemic problems as opposed to, uh, you know, to, to real progress. This is at least uplifting. I'm excited that for once we're ending on a positive note. And on that positive note, thank you guys so much for joining. I think we probably could have this conversation for the rest of the day, but I don't think it's possible that nobody else would listen to it. Um, it's been awesome working with you guys on this project. So thank you. And thank you for contributing to it. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Emily. Thanks, Matt. Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.